Thanks for listening to the Frontiers podcast. If you have a moment before we start, please rate and follow this podcast. It makes a huge difference. The more of you that do this, the more people get to listen. And the more people that get to listen, the bigger platform I'm building for academics to share their research. Thanks so much. Hi there. You're listening to Frontiers, the podcast that explores cutting-edge research from the world's best scientists. I'm Ian Hallett, and in each episode, I interview professors, doctors, and research scientists who are leading authorities in technology, economics, business, politics, the environment, and sociology, so we can learn about the scientific breakthroughs that will redefine our world. Today, I have the privilege of speaking with Jana Sedlikova, a research scientist at the University of Zurich in Switzerland. Jana's expertise lies at the intersection of artificial intelligence and human interaction. Our conversation will delve into her research on the role of conversational AI in psychotherapy. We begin by laying a foundational understanding of what we mean by conversational AI in the context of psychotherapy, and then we'll dive into the complex questions in this area that Jana is exploring. And now, please enjoy my discussion with Jana Sedlikova. Let's start right at the top. Your research is about artificial intelligence and using it in psychotherapy. So just so we can frame the conversation for everybody, how are you defining conversational artificial intelligence? And can you just explain what you mean by psychotherapy? Yeah, thank you for the question. It's, yeah, it's very important to start with the definitions. So the conversational artificial intelligence, uh, I would define it as a technology um, that is used um, for several purposes, but at the core of this technology is conversation. So usually this conversational artificial intelligence is chatbots that are implemented very often in mobile applications, but there can be also voice assistance. So then the main medium is not the text, but the voice. Um, in some cases, we can also talk about conversational artificial intelligence that is more embodied, so it would be robots. Uh, so we would have like the full physical appearance. But in my research, I'm focusing on the conversational artificial intelligence in terms of chatbots. So I'm focusing only on the textual side. And in terms of psychotherapy, um, well, psychotherapy, I would define it as a treatment uh, for mental health uh, and well-being, a treatment that helps people to, to tackle some troubling emotions, thoughts, and behaviors. There are, of course, many different types of psychotherapy. And usually this psychotherapy happens between um, the patient or a person that has some, some problems and a human therapist, um, and they are talking together. So there are the similarities. The conversation is at the center of both the conversational artificial intelligence, but also the psychotherapy. Okay, excellent. Thank you. So psychotherapy, I think most people would understand. So it's things like cognitive behavioral therapy and meditation and these types of things. That's what you mean by that. So let's just dig into conversational artificial intelligence. Does that actually exist today? Well, it exists. It definitely exists. Um, there are many examples. The question is to what extent we can call it artificial intelligence. Uh, I mean, the, the definition of artificial intelligence is always a little bit troublesome because what it means intelligence, what it means uh, artificial. But I will refer to it as, as to technology that is using machine learning or deep learning algorithms. And many of these chatbots that are used in the context of mental health and well-being and also for the purposes of psychotherapy are, are still rule-based, which makes a lot of sense because like this, um, the conversation can be quite controlled. And this is important, particularly in the context of mental health, which is very sensitive 
Um, so you wouldn't decrease the risk. But of course, there are also examples of conversation artificial intelligence. For example, ChatGPT would be one of them. Okay. So I actually have tried to have a conversation with ChatGPT. I've got their app on my phone. I subscribe to the premium version. It's kind of easy to have a conversation, but essentially what you can see it doing is it's taking my words, converting them into text, responding in text, and then reading it back out again. However it does that, I don't know, but that's essentially the technology. It doesn't feel like a conversation yet. Is that as advanced as we've currently got, do you think? Yes. So it very much also depends on what do you ask, right? So I think that the chat GPT can be, can be used in many different forms. So it can be also more or less chatty, but it is true that very often it produces this long text, right? But then mm-hmm. if you have chatbots, uh, for mental health and well-being, they are quite chatty, but they are then rather rule-based or combination of both. So some of the outputs are, are based on the artificial intelligence. Some of the outputs are rather based on these predefined, uh, answers. I think that there is definitely a way how to go about this to make the, the chatbots more chatty or rather producing more this type of paragraphs of text. Mm-hmm. So let's go to the research. So you were investigating specifically conversational AI and whether it's a tool or an agent to be used in psychotherapy. So we need to define tool and agent, which we'll do in a moment. But what was the reason why you wanted to pursue this research? You mean with the focus on the tool and agent or on the focus on the conversational AI? On the conversational AI and the psychotherapy. Okay. So what was the what was the motivation for you wanting to explore this area? Yes. So um, there is also some, some personal story attached to it. Uh, I don't know how much you want to go into it. Go for it. <laughs> okay. So I studied philosophy and I was always very much interested in the in the philosophy of mind, but also theory of knowledge. So my main questions that I was always asking is how people form beliefs or how they change the existing beliefs. Because in your day-to-day interaction, you see that people rather struggle to form new beliefs or change what they believe. And I found it always fascinating how you start to believe something, right? <laughs> so I was interested in, in this, what I call normativity of knowledge. So what makes you believe something new? And then I was also very much interested in the philosophy of psychology and philosophy of psychiatry. Because when, for example, looking at people with depression, it seems like they form beliefs in a different way. So they would, for example, um, they would be in this very negative um, space where it's very hard to believe something positive, to simplify it. And I was very interesting, like to compare it. Um, and then it's, and it's always the case, something unusual happens. And uh, I started my PhD in philosophy, but then unfortunately my supervisor passed away. So I needed to change. And I realized that I'm very much interested in the new technology, also in the mental health care. And first I was focusing on the mobile applications because back in 2020, this was quite popular, very different mobile applications for healthcare, but also mental health. Uh, but then when I was reading more into it, I realized that the conversational agents or the conversational AI and shitbots seems to be very promising because, as I mentioned at the beginning, at the center there is conversation, which is very important also for user, user and patient's engagement, but it makes it also more interesting, right, if you chat with someone uh, rather than having an app. So I focused my research on this and I thought this will be quite interesting. Um, 
in 2020, many people were skeptical and they tell me that this is <laughs> maybe not such a good topic, uh, but with ChatGPT, it's changed quite rapidly. Uh, so this was more like very shortly my, my private path towards this topic. And in terms of research, as I mentioned, I find it fascinating um, that there is for the first time the technology that is not only used for communication, but we communicate with the technology. And this is also at the core of the technology. Got it. Okay, let's talk about AI as a tool or AI as an agent. So for the everyday person on the street, what's the difference between the two? Yes. So conversational AI as a tool would be perceiving it as something uh, that, for example, that you have on your phone, it's just a thing. So you would have also very different attitudes towards it. For example, if something doesn't work, you wouldn't probably blame your phone. You would be maybe disappointed, but you wouldn't blame it. Um, you would interact with it also in a different way. So you wouldn't personalize it, let's say. Um, you wouldn't also expect that the phone would be responsible for something that happens in the interaction. Um, or for example, so you wouldn't trust the phone, you would try to rely on the phone. You would rely on the tool. But then when looking at the Asian part, this goes more towards the direction, or it goes definitely into the direction of humans. Uh, so for example, you would trust the human being, you would trust the agent. Uh, but also you could say that the agent is responsible for something that is happening. Um, you would also expect that the agent uh, shows empathy, sense of humor, and all these different abilities and properties that humans have. So there is this very large difference between a tool and an agent. Okay, so if you take the two ends of the spectrum, I think one of the things that you say in your paper is that that is, is likely to be somewhere in between the two. So how do you, uh, and I find it difficult to conceptualize where it stops being at all and when it starts becoming an agent. And I just think about when, when Alexa was first um, launched and I had one in my house, like, you know, millions of other people did. I always said, please, whenever I asked it to do something. So I was treating it as if it was a person. Um, I found myself saying thank you to it. So I was already unconsciously or subconsciously treating it differently to how I would treat my phone uh, or, a, or, or an app on my phone. So how, how do you think about the line between tool and agent and the continuum that goes along from one to the other? Yes, this is, uh, I would say this is the main challenge, how to, how to find new concepts, how to think about these conversational agents. And I think it is first important to look more at this distinction or at this framework of tools versus agents. Um, because it seems like um, at the level of the conversation, it seems like it's an agent, right? As you mentioned, you would, you would, for example, uh, respond, thank you, or please, can you answer this question? And it makes sense because these agents are developed with these very strong human-like features. So they are developed in a way that they interact as if it was another human being. Um, and there is also the social response theory that says that people tend to anthropomorphize uh, things around them. So they tend to treat objects as agents. But here the difference is with the conversational agents that they are purposely developed with these human-like features. So it's reinforcing it. 
Um, so the entire conversation is designed in this human-like way. But then when we look at what it is in reality, then it seems more like it's a tool. And my suggestion was to think about it. In the end, my suggestion is to think about it in a new way. Because it seems like is it a tool, it seems like it is an agent. And I would say we should try to find the new ways how to how to treat uh, conversational agents and maybe think about some other examples. And um, for example, some people like to compare um, AI with animals and looking at different ways of interacting or, or collaboration. Uh, my preference is to think about it as fictional characters because it seems like it's a fictional character. So it's something like, is it a human being, but it's not. <laughs> I'm not sure if I answered the question, but. <laughs> No, you, you, you have. So let's just kind of explore that a little bit more. So, so are you saying from a theoretical perspective, think of these conversational AIs as a fictional character and we should design them, manage them, govern them, think about the ethics of them in that way as if they're, this, what, what do you, is that what you mean? Exactly. This is a new idea that I have, so it's not fully developed, but I think this is a way how to go, like to try to, to think about them as fictional characters. Because, for example, if you have a fictional characters, it makes sense that uh, you would think about it in a specific way as an agent. But at the same time, you know that the character doesn't exist. So I would say you can then bridge the gap or bridge the confusion that might be there. I mean, mm. the confusion between is it now a tool or is it an agent? Because, again, it seems like on the level of interaction, it is. it seems to be an agent. But then, of course... Not, or we can discuss uh, in which way it is, but not in the way as humans are. I think what's quite interesting, and there's there's a really obscure parallel that I've, I've just thought of in my mind when you were talking about that. If you go back 50 or 60 or 70 years ago, people had pen pals. So they would write to each other, people they'd never met mm -hmm. from halfway around the world. And some people would be doing it for decades. So in some ways that individual is a fictional character to them because the only interaction between them is a letter. Um, and this was before the time where, you know, we could do calls like this and we could see each other and we could interact. Of course, you could speak on the phone, but pen pals was a very specific thing that people did. So I wonder whether or not the human condition is such that it will always, over time, make the thing real in their own heads. Is that something that you've explored? It's something that I'm starting to explore because I, yeah, this is a very good example. Um, but also when I think about the fictional characters, it seems like the, the human ability of creativity, right? Or imagination is very strong. So it's not only what I perceive, it's a lot what I imagine. Um, and there is some research about, for example, the normativity of imagination, so, for example, how the fiction can guide us in forming new beliefs, which is, again, important in the context of psychotherapy or also in the context of conversation when, when people will learn something new from the conversational agents. So I think this is, yeah, this is definitely an interesting way. I, I hope to explore it more in my future research, but I don't have any conclusions. Yes, it's more a work in progress. But well, you're on the cutting edge, so I'm not surprised you haven't thought it all through yet. 
<laughs> but maybe one more comment about the um, about the example when you write with someone, right? I think that there are differences that it is a, another human being, so you can expect that the person on the other side of the world will reply in a similar way, right? But in terms of fictional characters and conversational agents, they interact in a different way. So you cannot expect the same interaction as you have with human beings. Sorry to interrupt. Please give me 30 seconds of your time. I want to say two things. First, you're halfway through this episode. If you're enjoying it, please follow this podcast on whatever platform you're using. It makes a huge difference. Second, lots of listeners of this podcast are research scientists. If that's you, then consider joining Frontiers Collective, a dynamic community that unites research scientists with a common purpose to achieve transformative research outcomes. In this private community, you'll have the opportunity to engage in thoughtful discussions, share ideas, and gain valuable insights from diverse perspectives. The Frontiers Collective serves as a platform for knowledge exchange where cutting-edge research across disciplines converge. To learn more, go to frontierscollective.com. Thank you. Back to the interview. So let's talk about the ethics of this. Mm-hmm. So you touched this in your in your paper as well around the the risks of mimicking human action uh, and human interaction, which is kind of what we're talking about now. But you, there is o- an obvious problem here that, despite what you said about people perceiving it slightly differently or very fundamentally differently to a to a, a relationship with a human, even if they've never met the individual, there must be a risk that someone could become dependent on a conversational AI, they could become friends with it, they could fall in love with it. There's lots of things that could possibly happen. So you've addressed, you've you've covered some of the ethics around that. So could you just talk through your thought process and how you think we should be thinking about those types of issues? Yes. So when, when looking at the different regulations and also ethics concerning conversational artificial intelligence, I find it also interesting that there are some regulations and, and ethical frameworks that are treating this technology rather as a tool. So they are treating it more from the perspective of artificial intelligence. We need to make safe, uh, that, uh, makes a very important principles such as privacy, security, um, data quality. So, reduction of biases. And I think this is very important. And this is more like the higher level uh, regulation. But then I think where we need more work is to think about how this conversation should unfold. So how these chatbots or how these artificial intelligence should interact, and probably also with different user groups. So for example, the conversational agents should interact differently with children than with adults or the interaction probably should be different uh, with patients in dementia care than with patients for psychotherapy purposes. Um, just a few examples. And I think there is not enough research done and there are also not enough regulations how these conversational agents should or shouldn't interact in different settings and with different people. So are you t- at all concerned about that? So so the, the regulations, I can't imagine they're going to, keep up with the pace of the development of AI. Um, probably already several years behind regulating something as simple. Well, I know it's not simple, but as basic as ChatGPT is and some of the other AI bots that are out there at the moment. So can you foresee a scenario where these ethical issues can actually be resolved? Or the alternative to that is that the corporations that are behind these AI engines, whatever you want to call them, they're in pursuit of 
profit, of market share, of, 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 of getting a product that people love. And they will not stop until they win. That's, that's how these organizations are designed. So do you feel like it's possible, probable, that the ethics will be addressed over time? Well, in this regard, I'm quite optimistic. I would say that it is possible. I hope that it is probable. The question is how detailed it will be. But then also in terms of the question how these conversational agents should or shouldn't interact, I think that also the public is extremely important because it's not a decision that researchers uh, can do. I mean, this is definitely a topic for different stakeholders and public is definitely one of them. So it's something that needs to be decided with the public and in the end with patients and with the users, what is important for them. And I say also this technology, um, also uh, when thinking about philosophy of technology, I'm thinking about it as something that is in the end very human. So we have technology, we always had technology and how we use technology always change with the time because it always defined how we treat it and how we use it. So this will, I would say, there will be some natural way um, how it will be regulated. I think that also public is more and more interested in the ethical questions, which is really great. And there are also more, but there is more sensitivity towards it. And companies are also starting to be, uh, from what I've seen, interested in these questions. Uh, because in the end, if the chatbot doesn't interact well and people have a bad experience with it, then people will stop using it. So it's also in their own interest. You talked about the public discourse in your paper as well, didn't you? Um, you know, that should play some form of role. So can, do you have any recommendations or thoughts on how that should actually happen? Because if I think about what I see is a polarized view. You've got one group of people, which is you know, a large population, which are saying this is the end of the world. AI is going to kill everybody. This is a total disaster. You've got the other end of the spectrum, which is this is going to save the world. It's going to solve all of our problems. It's going to make us more productive and everyone's going to live a rich and happy life. And there's not a lot of balance in that, in the, in the conversation. I don't hear too many people sitting somewhere in between the two. So how would you think you would get the engagement of the public to bring some uniformity to the debate, some consistency, some balance to the debate that, that you think is, um, that we, that is probably needed? Yes, so uh, there are several ways how to how to do it, but my, I must also say that it's quite challenging. Um, it's something that I, I struggle as a researcher. We try to organize uh, several public events and try to reach the public, but then usually it's still people from the academia that attends these events. Um, other thing what we do is we organize focus groups. So there the public is specifically invited and we are talking about specific questions. Um, this is very important. I think that the focus groups are very important. Uh, but one potential and one thing that I would like to do is to collaborate with artists because I think that art is something um, that can communicate well with public. It's something interesting, it engages people. Uh, it's exciting. Uh, so collaboration with artists and creating events with them and think about how public can be more engaged can be a way how to go. So how would you do that? Um, I haven't started yet. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I hope I will organize something next year or later. Okay, but what's what's in your mind? What would you do? How, what would be your, your pitch to the artist to, to bring them in? 
Yes, yeah, so, so for example, as I mentioned, we can see this conversational AI as a fictional characters. So I find, would find it very okay. interesting how they would think about the interaction, but also how mm -hmm. they would design, for example, a workshop with the public to make it more interesting. Or for example, creating a short video to explain the, the issue there or to explain what is the purpose of this technology and what are the challenges. Okay. I okay. think many people saw many different movies, you know, like for example, her or, or other movies that are already shaping our way, how we think about AI. Yeah. I was going to ask you about her actually at the end. So we might as well cover it now. So, so for those that don't know, her is a brilliant film. I can't remember who's in it actually. And it was released probably five years ago, maybe even longer yep. where this guy falls in love with his AI, which is essentially something in his in his headset, or he wears these little Apple Pods or whatever it is the equivalent that he's doing. Can you envision a future where that capability is real and that um, that experience that the individual character in that film has is one that is quite common amongst people? Well, I'm I'm not so sure if it will be common, but we already see some examples of people that uh, that fell in love either with a robot or with the conversational agents. And some of them even claimed that they would like to marry them. And here, it, it's tough to, to say if it's ethically problematic or not. I would say that it starts to be ethically problematic if people start to isolate themselves. So if this has a negative impact on their life. Um, yes, I think this will, be, this will be the case because it's already the case. But I'm not so sure if it will be so common. <laughs> So I haven't heard of these examples where people have fallen in love with AI chatbots and robots. Do you have any more details? Um, not really, but there are these examples I can then examples I can then look it up later on. <laughs> okay, fantastic. We'll put it in the show notes if you can give me any details mm -hmm. of that, because that is fascinating. I hadn't I hadn't heard that. I can completely understand how it's possible. Yes, um, but for example, there is this this chatbot, it's called Replica, and the idea there is that it's your friend. So the, this mm -hmm. chatbot is particularly developed with the aim to form friendships. Interesting. Interesting. There's only one way this is going to go. Sorry? Uh, in my, in my, it's, there's only one way where this is going to go in my mind, which is there's a logical evolution here. There's a logical conclusion where I, I wonder that humans are going to treat AI and conversational AI as if they're friends, as if they're in a relationship with them, as if they're a trusted advisor, and and so on. I think we're seeing the behavior now already with the mass adoption of ChatGPT and, and others like it, um, where some people are becoming very reliant on it. And the, we're at version four. We're not at version 24, which will be, you know, maybe only five years away. Well, I think this might be possible, but then again, uh, my question is how people or how we will be able to to form our expectations and navigate these relationships. Because I, I mm. think this is the core problem because when i have a relationship with a human being i just know how this relationship can develop for example if uh if there is breach of trust i know that this trust can be recovered and i know how to go around and, and how to behave there but these conversational agents are not same as humans they will never be same as humans they're really novel type of something so the question is there how we will navigate these relationships so that yeah. they have don't have negative impact overall. Okay, so let's let's go back to the to the research um, and the practicalities of it. So, let's say I'm I'm in need of some sort of psychotherapy. I'm in need of cognitive behavioral therapy, and um, I've got an option of an AI 
conversational AI as a tool that's helping a human clinical psychologist or an option as a AI as an agent, where I'm assuming it is the takes the role of the clinical psychologist. So how would the experience differ between the two? So in the scenario where the AI is the tool that the psychologist is using to treat a patient using cognitive behavioral therapy, how would that actually happen? How would that work in practice, do you think? Well, for example, these conversational agents can be really good at supporting patients in in the psychotherapy. So, for example, when people feel distressed, they can have the small interventions in the real time because it's there. They can also uh, practice some of the skills and methods uh, that they learn with the psychotherapist. So if it's a tool, it can be really perceived as something that has some kind of interactional interface, but in the end it's nothing else, just doing some homeworks and, and having some support. Um, yes. So, but then Okay, so that, that's as a tool. And would it, yes. what would it be? Would it be an app? Is that how you imagine it being or something that they look on their computer screen? How, how would the individual interact with the AI? Yeah, so I, I, I would assume, or this is already the case, usually it's on a mobile app. I mean, there is always the option to have it also on your laptop, on a desktop version, but usually people use it as an app. Or then voice assistants. Okay, and would the manifestation of it be any different if it if the AI was an agent so it was playing the role of a therapist would you imagine that the execution of that capability would be different in any way or would it still be through an app or through a through something that you look at your computer or is there a different way that we would get access to that um i'm not sure if i uh, completely understand the question but um how i imagine the difference if you really want to keep this this strong difference which I don't think it's realistic. But if you wanted to have conversation AI only as a tool, then I would say that the design needs to be different. So the interaction wouldn't be so strong human-like. If it's an agent, it's what is going on today. You would try to simulate as many human-like features as possible in the conversation. And if you want to push it even more further, you can have even like an avatar that looks like a human or looks maybe something else. Um, which is also a case in in um, in some of these applications that you have an avatar that is moving, maybe a little bit mm-hmm. dancing to, to make you feel better. Um, or then you can have the embodied robots. That's what I was getting at. Would, would it need an avatar or something like that that would make it feel more real um, rather than being a tool that you can kind of engage with like you would engage with any tool that you got on your phone or, or, or anywhere else that you use it? So the... The risks for patients using it, we've covered a little bit, and the benefits for using conversational AI for you know, to help their mental health. Again, you covered that in your paper. Could you just kind of go through what you think are the main risks and the main benefits to the patient mm-hmm. of using this type of capability? So I will start with the benefits, because I think that this technology has a great potential. Um, so we already know that there is a huge treatment gap. There are many people that need psychological treatment, um, but they don't get it. And there are many reasons why. There are still problems with stigma, there are financial reasons, but also the reason is there are not so many psychotherapists. So this technology has the potential to help to bridge this gap, and it can support uh, the ongoing psychotherapy. For example, as I mentioned before, it can support patients uh, with this exercising or having some simple intervention when they need it. For example, when they feel anxious, 
uh, they can start to chat uh, with the conversational agents and the conversational agents can guide them through a meditation that might be very helpful. Uh, so I think this is, this is an amazing potential. Um, another very positive thing can be that these conversational chatbots can collect data that can be then informative also for the psychotherapist. So for example, they can check every day um, how the patient feels. For example, in the morning, in the afternoon, uh, in the evening, the chatbots can also collect real-time data, so very contextual information, which can help the psychotherapist, but also the patients to, to understand themselves better, to recognize some patterns. Um, so th these are definitely the benefits. Uh, another benefit is that usually these apps are cost-free, uh, which is also great. Um, and the risks. So there is, of course, the risk of biases. So the conversational AI can be as good as are the data. And usually the data uh, that this conversational AI is trained on include some biases. Um, another risk is that people or patients starts to be too dependent on this technology. So for example, very often it's claimed that the availability of this technology is a benefit, but I see it also as a risk because if it's available every day at any time, then there is the risk that, that patients will just interact with it and they will not try to solve the problems by themselves. So it can decrease the autonomy and agency of the patient. So there is this dependency uh, risk. Then another risk will be a deception. So even though these chatbots are very transparent and they would tell you at the beginning, oh, I'm only a chatbot, but if you interact with it every day, let's say for one hour or, or even less, you, will for, you might forget it, mainly if the stimulation of human conversation is very strong. And again, the, the risk depends also on the different patient groups. So for example, the risk would be probably higher with children or um, with uh, patients with some cognitive impairments. So these are some of the risks. Another very important risk that I found is, uh, again, if the simulation of human conversation is too strong, I would say it is quite natural to form expectations that you would form with a human psychotherapist, but these expectations cannot be met. Uh, so for example, some qualitative studies are suggesting that people are quite often disappointed because the conversation is not so complex. And we are again in the context of mental health where the conversation is extremely complex, right? And it's also extremely specific. Um, and a little bit going back to the data, the data is very general data. So usually uh, for the textual data, it's Wikipedia. You can feed the algorithms with some books, uh, but it's very general. It's not so specific to, to people that are struggling with some mental health challenges and problems. So the question there is to what extent can, can this conversational agent understand you and what you can share? And this is very limited. Um, and I think this is dangerous because if people start to like this technology and see the potential towards it, they can start to adjust their way how they interact with it. So if, for example, they would rather share some quantitative um, aspects of their experience. For example, that they were, I don't know, uh, that they exercise uh, three times per week, but they wouldn't share these intimate, these important, complex experiences because they would knew that the chatbot wouldn't understand it. Um, and, and I find this very important uh, risk and challenge.
So in healthcare, risks are generally managed through regulations and making sure that whoever are the providers of these tools and these technologies do adhere to some basic minimum standards to protect the to protect the patient. It seems to me that our regulations are not that well suited for the technology that we've currently got. I don't know, I'm not an expert. I think you've touched on this as well. Can you give us some thoughts on how regulations or how we should be thinking about regulation in order to manage the risks that you've just described? Yes, so as I mentioned before, I think it's very important to focus on the regulations such as uh, decreasing the biases, focusing on the good data quality. Because if you don't have a good data quality and the algorithms are not well trained, then you will have also very bad input. So it's important to make sure that the information the conversational agents are giving to patients are correct and true information. This is really like the basis. Um, also privacy and security issues. So I would say this is a very important uh, regulation that should be at the core. But then the second level is this level of the conversation and the level of the interaction to make sure that people feel well in this interaction that they know what to expect from it. They know how this interaction can develop, how this relationship can develop. And here it's problematic again, because um, I wouldn't say that it's it should be like a set of experts saying it should be like this or this. Um, this needs to be done um, in collaboration with the public and with the patients. So again, more research, more studies um, to see what is better. Do you think the regulation has a chance of catching up? Do I you think so. it has a chance of being there when it's when it's needed? Well, it's definitely slow. Um, it's definitely slower than the development, but I think that the regulation is there, and particularly in the healthcare, you wouldn't give patients something that is very dangerous. Hopefully not. Hopefully not. <laughs> yes. So we've talked theoretically. Um, quite a lot during this conversation around tall and agent and one extreme to the other. And as you said in your paper, it's unlikely to be one or the other. It's likely to be somewhere in between. So if we think to the future, where do you imagine, if you take a two-year, a 10-year, and then maybe even longer, a 20 or a 30-year time horizon, where do you think this is going to end up? And I'm thinking specifically conversational AI in the use case that you're talking about psychotherapy. And if you want to go beyond that, then please do. Well, I can imagine that the conversational AI will be more and more used in the context of healthcare. So for example, the first contact you will ha have with a healthcare provider will be conversational AI. So we'll not call your GP, but will call, we will have an interaction with the conversational AI. And the conversational AI will then do some basic triage. So deciding, okay, this person needs this treatment or that treatment, this person needs to uh, talk to this person. Uh, I think it has been already implemented in the UK, but it wasn't so successful. <laughs> so there is, uh, again, uh, there needs to be much more done. Um, I think it will be also used as a support for psychotherapy. So I think that people that don't get therapy, they can learn some basic skills and get some basic information about mental health from these conversational agents. So I think this will be more used, but I don't see that in 10 or 15 years it will be replaced. I think that people will still seek um, the human therapist. Why do you think it will end up like that? 
Well, because as we mentioned several times, the conversational agents, even though they simulate the human interaction and the human agents, they are not humans. So I would say that people will always prefer to talk to a human therapist. Okay. It's going to be fascinating to see how it pans out. Now, I know you're building on this research. So this research was done, I think, during 2023, published published in the middle of 2023, and you're building on it now. So can you just talk through the research that you're currently working on? Yes. So in my current research, I, as I mentioned, I'm interested in the question how conversational agents should or shouldn't interact with, with different groups. Uh, so I'm, I'm developing an empirical study where I design six different chatbots personas. Because the, the choices that you can make in designing a chatbot are almost never ending. You, you will decide what avatar it will have, how it will look like, how it will interact. And conversation is so complex. So I developed six different chatbots personas. And these chatbots will ask uh, standardized questions about mental health and well-being. And I'm interested in how people will evaluate these interactions and if there will be some difference. So, for example, maybe younger people will prefer uh, the persona A and B, but maybe older people, older adults will prefer the persona C and D. So I'm very much interested uh, how people think about it and what is the experience of the users there. And I think also this is important for the future to target and to personalize these interactions. I implemented there also more ethical design um, because I tried to bridge this gap between what it is and what it appears to be. So half of these chatbots personas are less human-like. And I'm interested to see if people will perceive it <laughs> and if there will be better or worse experience with these less human-like chatbots. So how would they be less human-like? Well, I'm, I'm focusing on the way how they interact. So for example, they use much uh, less I. So, for example, they would never say, I'm sorry. They would say, oh, this is tough or this is sad. Uh, they would never say, I thank you or I appreciate your time here. They would say, it is great that you uh, find time. Or they would represent the researchers. So for example, they would say, the researchers that develop this chatbot system are very grateful for the time that they spend here. So there is less um, sentences with this first person. Um, but... I'm skeptical if people will perceive it. <laughs> but well, you'll find see. out. You'll, it's an interesting study. Out. It is. I, I've noticed that ChatGPT does say I mm -hmm. now. I've noticed that recently. I don't know whether it's, I've only just noticed it or whether it was already built in. Um, that makes you want to engage with it. I, I genuinely believe it makes you want to engage with it on a different level. It personifies it, essentially. It turns it into something that is not a bot based on code. It's, it feels different as a result of, of doing that. So it will be really interesting to see whether or not that does change the perception of, of, of these, these chatbots or not. And how are you, you got six different personas and you said that, you know, there could be a million different personas. So how did you go about constructing the, the, the personas? I know you're really early on and you may not have got to that yet, but how are you thinking about constructing those, those personas? Yeah, so I was looking already at the, at the research study that has been done. There was this interesting studies focusing on the social roles. And we are in the healthcare setting. So I, I tried to use the social roles that are common in the healthcare setting. So for example, one of the chatbots pretends to be like a professional, like a physician. 
The other chatbot is more uh, like a companion, like a friend. This is very common among the conversational agents. And the last one is very neutral. So it would be the University of Zurich. So it would represent the institution. It could have been also a hospital, but since I'm at the University of Zurich, I, I want this to be there transparent. <laughs> uh, so these are the three mm, social roles, and each social role has two different levels of humanization. So one is less human-like, as I mentioned before, and the other one simulates all the different um, human-like features. So for example, it would say, I appreciate uh, that you spend time with me. I'm curious to hear about you, or I'm curious to hear how was your day or how was your experience with something. And the other one wouldn't say it. The other one would be, it would be interesting to know, or the researchers would like to know. Fascinating. Fascinating. Jana, this has been a really enjoyable conversation. I have quite a few young people that listen to this podcast and your job sounds about as cool as they, as they come. It sounds a really interesting thing that you're doing. You're, it's touching on two really important issues, human well-being and technology, specifically artificial intelligence. So how did you arrive at where you're at? You talked about your, your journey earlier on in the earlier on, but can you just think about advice to your younger self or advice to somebody that might be five or 10 years behind you in their career? What type, and they, they see you, they see you as a role model. They see what you're doing as inspirational as something that they'd really like to get involved in. What advice would you give to them? In terms of how to define the research. Yeah. Yes. So, so in, in terms of following on the path, so they, well, Jana's got an amazing job. She seems to be doing really interesting things. Well, I would definitely, how do I do that? The question would be, how do I get to that? That's what a young person might be thinking. So I would definitely say that it's important to know yourself. So to know what is personally important to you, because I wouldn't be able to do all of this without having this intrinsic motivation. It is important to me. Uh, these questions were always fascinating to me. So I think it's also the question about the curiosity. So what interests you? But there must be also this personal significance um, and some relevance. So it's aligned with my values because personally, I was very often, um, I had many friends that struggled with mental health issues. Um, I also struggled with depression and complex PTSD. And so this is very personal for me. And it motivates me to focus on it. But then um, the other thing is also to look around and to see what are the opportunities and also explore other interests. Because as I mentioned at the beginning, I was interested in philosophy. I wouldn't think to be in this quite practical uh, research and interdisciplinary research. I collaborate mainly with health researchers and computer scientists. I rarely collaborate with philosophers, actually. So it's also to have this open mind and, and discover what is there and and try to seek the opportunities thank you for sharing that jana it's been a wonderful conversation i love the work that you're doing so thank you so much for taking the time to share it with us today um where can we find out more about you are you on linkedin any of the socials where can we find out more about your work yes so i'm on linkedin you can find me um when you just write my name uh this the social media that i usually use i'm not so active on social media <laughs> That's good to hear. You're too busy doing decent work. <laughs> <laughs> well, I find it very distracting. So, <laughs> yeah, I should tell my teenage my teenage kids that. Um, so, thank you again, and uh, 
I look forward to seeing what your next research comes and perhaps we'll get you back on the podcast when you've done it so you can report back on, on what you found. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me and for the invitation. I had a great time. Thank you so much for listening. To support this podcast, please follow us on whatever platform you're using. It makes a huge difference. Thank you again. Hope to see you next time.